The reading of the word this morning comes from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 12. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Father, in the next few moments that we spend here in Exodus chapter 3, would you be mindful? Mindful of the needs here in this room. Mindful of the variety of hearts and spiritual conditions run underneath your word this day and do as you have promised to do, which is to send your word forth for it to accomplish all for what you have sent it, that it would not return void, but that it would bear fruit tenfold, a hundredfold, even a thousand, even ten thousandfold for the glory and the fame of Jesus' name. Hear this prayer and now meet us, your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was a handful of months now. I was gathering with a group of educators and pastors and a number of therapists and counselors and social workers thinking through the development of children, thinking through discipleship in the home and in the church, in schools and in communities. One of our therapists who was meeting there with us, who has background in early child development, raised the note in the midst of our dialogues that over the course of a child's life, 
There's a number of fundamental questions that a child asks. The the first of those questions is, uh, who am I? A question with regards to identity. That a young child in many ways and shapes and forms is over the course of her or his early life asking that question, who am I? And then later as they get into late grade school, junior high, even into high school, they begin to ask the question, am I enough? Am I, am I enough? I've got a sense for who I am. I've got some sense of my gifting. I've got some sense of my place. But now the question is, am I enough for the things that are before me, from the challenges which I face, for the dreams that I am dreaming? Am I enough? And then there's a third question that comes at a variety of times throughout a child's life. But at some point, sometimes maybe not even until adulthood, we ultimately get to this third question. And that is, it has now become clear that I am not enough. And is that okay? Is that okay? And this is an opportunity for grace. This is an opportunity for grace. Do you recognize those questions? Maybe in the unfolding of your own life, who am I? Am I enough? I'm clearly not enough. Is that okay? In some sense, those questions are being asked actually this morning in Exodus chapter 3. Moses has grown up. He is 80 years old by the time that we engage the text here in Exodus chapter 3. And finally, he is ready for the call of God. Now, some of us in this room think to ourselves, he really missed his prime. He's uh, 80 years old. He's just now uh, hitting his stride. Some of us bloom late. Must have been the story of Moses. Here it is. Finally, God can use him for something uh, redemptively. But actually, I think that age and stage reveals something of not Moses' maturity or his blooming late, but has much more to do with God's own timing. That sometimes he uses us when we are our weakest. Isn't that true? Sometimes we're not any good until we are so weak that only he can be at work. I think Moses, in many ways in this passage, is addressing those questions. Who am I? Am I enough? I'm clearly not enough. Is that going to be okay? As we look at this text, even with those questions on the surface of the text, I want you to see with me these two realities unfolding in Exodus chapter 3, this mountain of God, where it is that the Lord comes down and meets with Moses. And I want you to see, most importantly, the God of the mountain, the one who comes in proportion to the call that he issues to Moses and promises that he will be all that he needs for what it is that he has called him to. Now, this mountain of God, that's really where this text opens up, isn't it, here in Exodus chapter 3, that Moses is living an ordinary life, a shepherd's life, here on the western slopes of this place called Midian on uh, Mount Horeb. It's here where Moses has grown quite comfortable, I think. He's got a wife by this point. Her name is Zipporah. We met her last time in um, Exodus chapter 2. 
He's got a son by the name of Gershom, so he has settled down and he's become a family man. And now we see at the opening of Exodus 3 that he has gained full employment. He is a shepherd, and notice who he's the shepherd of. He's working for his father-in-law. You know how delightful that must be. (laughs) He is working for Jethro, his father-in-law. Now, we actually learn here that he is a priest, a high holy man there in Midian. And so maybe there is some character to speak of with this man Jethro. We'll see him a number of times throughout the book of Exodus. But one thing's for certain, there is something of... Um, a staid, comfortable, ordinary, ancient Near Eastern life that has taken shape for Moses. And there is he's just simply looking for some grass and some water on the side hill of Mount Horeb, not far from Midian. His life is going to change forever. Things are going to be entirely turned upside down. Now, when you hear the term or the name of Mount Horeb, what comes to mind? Nothing, obviously, right? (laughs) Nothing comes to mind. This is the first time that Horeb is mentioned anywhere in uh, the Bible. The exact location of Mount Horeb is disputed today. Um, Many would put it as that high peak, Jebel Musa, um, near that end peninsula, right by where where Midian was situated, close to the Mediterranean Sea. A 7,500-foot peak, very impressive, with the plains of Midian not far uh, away. Some still today call it Moses' mountain, believing it to be the very mountain that Moses is on when he experiences the burning bush. The fact of the matter is, if you've done much Bible reading, you are familiar with Mount Horeb, but you may not be familiar with the name Horeb. You might be familiar with its other name, Mount Sinai. Right, this is the very mountain that Moses later in the book of Exodus will ascend and he will receive from God himself the Ten Commandments. Very interestingly, there's something of a mirroring throughout the book of Exodus where Moses spends a lot of time on tops of mountains and when he's on the top of a mountain, watch out, he's probably going to have a divine encounter and from that divine encounter, something is going to unfold, something big normally. Moses is actually going to ascend and descend seven times Mount Horeb from Exodus 19 to Exodus 34. And in each of those cases, he's going to have a dizzying number of divine encounters that's going to change his life and the life of the people of Israel forever. And so it's appropriate that here is Moses for the very first time, as far as we know, having any kind of supernatural encounter with God. And it's appropriate that because of his life's unfolding, that it would begin on a mountain. But it's not important so much just the location of the mountain, this mountain of God. It's the God that he actually meets on the mountain that's more of the important component of this text. And as he meets this God of the mountain, we learn three things about this God that is critically important. The first thing that we learn is that he is a God of unapproachable holiness. He is a God of unapproachable holiness. Now put yourself in the shoes of Moses. He's It's another day at the office. It's business as usual. He's looking for grass and water for his sheep. And then something out of the corner of his eye catches him. And it's a burning bush. He watches the burning bush for some time. And it just keeps burning and burning and burning. And it doesn't burn out. 
And as any of us would do if we were in that circumstance, he gets fascinated by it. He's astonished at what's taking place. And so we're told that as he looks and as he sees, he goes over toward the bush. And as soon as he gets to the bush, the most unimaginable and shocking thing happens. The bush talks to him and it knows his name. Moses, Moses. Now, I half expect to read at this point in the book of Exodus that Moses quickly turns and runs in sprint in the opposite direction, scared out of his mind that a flaming bush just spoke to him and called him by name. Or at the very least, to expect that he's rubbing his eyes, wondering if he's dreaming or or sticking a finger in his ears to say, did I really just hear my name come from this flaming bush? That's not what we read in the text. Instead, we read a dutiful, here I am. I must, there must be some of, something of a quiver, something of a shock in the here I am. If the bush, flaming bush talks to me, it seems to be the right principle to answer back. Here I am. And as soon as he does, the bush responds, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now we as readers are actually privy to a little bit more information than uh, Moses in the moment that he's first encountering this flaming bush. We've already been told in verse 2 that this is nothing other than the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. A phrase we've heard already in the Scriptures, a phrase that we hear throughout the Scriptures of the Old Testament, and scholars like to wrangle, as scholars do, over what exactly is or who exactly is the angel of the Lord. Is this Michael, the archangel, the chief of all of the angels? Is this Gabriel, who tends to come with important messages? Uh, What angel is this? Well, we could spend time uh, looking at the grammar. We could spend time going through all of the sightings. But the wonderful thing about this particular text is it actually gives it away. In verse 4 of the text, we actually learn that that this is none other than God himself. We read in verse 4, When the Lord saw that he, that's Moses, turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. This angel of the Lord, this this flame from within the midst of the bush is none other than God himself. This is, as we would describe it, a theophany, an appearance of the Lord to his people in the Old Testament. Now, some of you knew this already, right? Because, well, you know how often God is presented in the scriptures by the imagery of fire, So you were already somewhat clued to this. Some of you went back in your minds to Genesis chapter 15. You remember that covenant-making ceremony with Abraham. As God was cutting that covenant with Abraham, you remember that he separated the pieces of the animal. And and as those pieces of the animal were separated, God cut a covenant with Abraham saying, I will make of your people um, as as, um, large and as plentiful and as many as the stars in the sky and the sea and the sand on the seashore. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will give to you a son. He will have many sons. You will be a blessing to all the families of the earth and you can bank on it because I'm going to make a covenant with you. And as I make a covenant with you, I'm promising that 
if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, I will become like these animals that have been cut. I will receive from you, I will receive the very judgment of my failure to keep the promises that I made to you. And here's my commitment I'm going to pass through the pieces. It was typical of the ancient Near Eastern covenant to pass through the pieces, to bring what's called an oath down upon yourself that if I don't do what it is I've said to do, may it be done to me like it's done to these animals. And what passed through the, the uh, pieces of the animal in Genesis 15? A smoking pot and a flaming torch. Now some of you, because again, you're biblical scholars, you remember this, that this is going to happen later in Exodus 13. Do you remember how the people of Israel were led in the wilderness? By a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Yes, you're on to something here. Do you remember in Exodus 19 when Moses is back at this very mountain in Mount Sinai as he is about to ascend to go up for the Ten Commandments? We actually see that there is smoke that emanates from the mountain and God descends in fire. Yes, of course, this is the imagery that's given to us of God multiple times throughout the scripture. And here we have a real picture of the holiness of God. It's appropriate that fire is actually used, isn't it? Because what, well, what in the world do we have more an attraction to and also simultaneously repelled from than fire? Uh, fire is this thing that for some of us who are well, pyromaniacs at heart, we're always messing with the fire, we're drawn to the fire, and then we're always sort of setting someone else or something else on fire. And we're both dangerous around it and inextricably drawn to it. Moses, we see, is intrigued by this burning bush. He must go over towards it. And then as soon as he gets there, the bush is going, No way, Jose, keep your distance. He's eager to see it. In fact, five times we're told he goes to look and to see at the bush. And then after the bush actually speaks to him, we're told that he hides his face afraid of it. He didn't want to see it. Because it's not simply the bush or the fire. It's what the bush and the fire stand for in this point, at this point, And it's the very holiness of God. He has to take off his sandals and walk barefoot. Because he stands on holy ground. Now we live in the great city of Nashville. The capital city of country music. And in downtown Nashville we have what is known as the first church. Of country music. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The Ryman Auditorium, that marvelous, wonderful, acoustical gem of a theater. It, it, there in that place, in the Ryman Auditorium, artists for centuries, it seems, have gone there to where the richness of the music is built, as it were, into the walls. And when artists show up at the Ryman Auditorium, as I've seen a few there, stand on that stage in the spotlight, there's a trend about their opening remarks. They say something about, I am so honored and pleased to be here in none other than the first church of country music, the Ryman Auditorium. And then they begin to say, I sense and feel as if I am on holy ground. For this is where Johnny Cash played. And this is where Dolly Parton sung. And I just can't even believe that the likes of those legends that have gone before, I get to stand in this place. 
What makes the Ryman Auditorium holy ground for country music lovers is because of the people who have stood there, the people who have sung there. The same is true of the moment in which Moses stands on this holy ground. It's not the specialness of the soil composition. It's the fact that he stands where God himself is present. And he stands, as we see, in an unapproachable holiness. This term holiness literally means to be separated out from. To be holy other than. When we talk about a legend like a Johnny Cash and we speak about an athlete as if they are head and shoulders better than anyone else, we say things like, oh, he or she, they're like no other. We've not seen anyone quite like, like them. And we're putting them in a category by themselves. That's the notion of holiness. It's being set apart. Except in this case, holiness as described with regards to God himself means that God is holy other. He is not like us. He is not of the things of earth. He is not of the fabric of flesh and bone. He is of a glory and a perfection and a holiness that is separated and different from us to such a degree that his glory is so powerful that we are inescapably drawn to it and simultaneously can't be in its presence. Because of the glory and the power of his majesty. This God whom Moses has come to meet is a God who dwells in unapproachable holiness. But I want you to see, secondly, he is a God who pursues us in his love. And this seems somewhat ironic, doesn't it? He dwells in unapproachable holiness. We can't can't approach him in the glory of his nature. And yet, what's he doing He's pursuing us with his love. He even tells to Moses in this text that he is coming down to deliver his people. But even before he unpacks the mission that he has for Moses, notice what he says in verse 6. He wants him to know who he is. He introduces himself to Moses. He identifies himself with who it is that he has been in relationship with for some time now. Verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. As God speaks to Moses, he says, I want you to know all of the acts of glory and redemption that have been performed, all the fulfillment of the promises of the whole of the book of Genesis, even your great-great-great-grandfather Jacob and Joseph and whole of the story of redemption, all of that happened. Yeah, that's, that's me. I did that. That was me. That was my work. I want you to know that as I come to you, I'm in relationship with all of them. This is the God who is speaking to Moses. But I want you to see that he's going even a bit of a deep, deeper level into the heart of Moses, even where Moses is at this particular point. If Moses has been asking at any level the question, who am I? God is now beginning to answer that very specifically. He says, not only am I the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see that triumvirate uh, throughout the unfolding of the Old Testament. But notice what he says to Moses. I am the God of your father. I'm the God of your father. Notice in the shoes of Moses, this foreigner from Egyptian culture and upbringing, with an adopted, as it were, dad and mom, one who lives now in a foreign land, 
One who has married a, a, a wife from Midian, who has a son that he names Gershom, who dwell, who, whose name literally means, I dwell in a foreign and strange land. Moses, who has never felt at home in his own skin and has never found a place that he would call his own. Now God comes to him and says, I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of the spiritual lineage from which you come from. Moses, I want you to know who it is that you are. You are in line of my covenant promises. It's as if God in this very um, passage is expressing to himself his own kind of father-like love in caring for this, his son, his covenant son Moses, as he raises him up to be a deliverer of the people of Israel. It's as if God is saying, I know who you are, Moses. I know your true identity. I know your heritage. I know all these things because not only am I the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not only am I the God of your father, but Moses, I'm your God. And what we see about this God is that he has not left his people. He has not left Moses to his comfortable Midian shepherding life. But he has for Moses and he has for his people a salvation. He cares for his people. Notice that the language that it begins to unfold about the afflictions of God's people. Notice how he speaks of them um, here in the, in the text. As he begins in verse 7, he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians." You know, the language here that's, that's given to us in the Hebrew is, is, is that this God is not, he's not distant, though he just a second ago told Moses to keep his distance. He tells Moses to keep his distance because he, he cares for Moses. He knows Moses can't dwell in his holiness without being destroyed. But he's got a plan for that. But he wants Moses to know that his declaration of holiness and the distance required in that is not meant to be considered as a cold, distant, unaffectionate, um, removed God, but a God who actually is loving and caring and is making a plan to welcome Moses and his people into his holiness by his love. He says, I have seen my people's affliction. I've heard their cry. I know their afflictions. And notice, I haven't stayed away. I've come down to meet you on Mount Horeb. And the purpose is I'm here to deliver them from their slavery in Egypt. You know, this is more of the imagery of the intimacy of God because there's this wonderful text in Isaiah 63, 9 where the prophet tells us that not only does God know the afflictions of his people, but in the afflictions of his people, the prophet says, he, speaking of God, he was afflicted. Well, parents in here, you know that experience, right? When your children go through something really difficult and as painful and as hard as it is for your children, it's like you feel it and it's even more painful or it's, it's a bigger even gut shot for you than it is maybe even for them. It's as if the covenantal love of God is being described here in the midst of the deliverance call that has come to Moses. He wants Moses to know that though he is a God who dwells in unapproachable light, he's a God who has come down in order to pursue his people for deliverance. He wants to be and is the God of salvation. 
And this coming down means that he actually has a plan. And he's got Moses as a big part of it. Notice that in verse 10. Here's, here's the deal, Moses. Here's what I want to tell you. I want you to know, Moses, that I am going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You see here that God is a God of not just unapproachable holiness or pursuant love. He is also a God of enduring faithfulness. Because he is going to use the likes of a man named Moses. I want you to go, Moses, to Pharaoh and bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Here's my mission for you. And it's not surprising when you see that come forth from the page and the call. You can almost anticipate Moses' response, can't you? Notice his words. Who am I that you would call me to this work? Who am I? Now, notice the change here. He started the text with the burning bush speaking to him, and he's like, here I am. And now he's halfway through, and he's going, who am I? <laughs> who am I that you would call me into this work? In one sense, Moses knows who he is, but in a very real sense, Moses doesn't know who he is. Especially this happens, doesn't it, when we get, well, a call that feels um, way beyond our capacity. There's nothing more humbling and, and stretching than that. When someone is demanding something of you that you feel like you can't give, and you think to yourself, who am I? I'm in over my head. This is way beyond my capacity. That's the spirit of Moses' question. Who am I that you would call me to lead your people, Israel, out of, out of Egypt? And don't you love the fact that God in his enduring faithfulness here responds in exactly the way that Moses needs to hear it? He doesn't give him what we would tend to give someone who's doubting themselves in this moment. He doesn't give Moses a pep talk. Moses, you really shouldn't be such a downer on yourself. You've got far more gifts than you can imagine. I tell you what, if you can do anything you put your mind to, you go out there and accomplish all you've put your heart to, and the world won't be able to stop you. You go choose what it is that you want to be, and you can be the redeemer of the people of, of, of Israel. I promise you, it can happen, Moses. That's not what we hear from God. That's what we hear from Zig Ziglar, right? Or that's what we hear from, 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 from 21st century sort of uh, uh, affirmative, um, go take the world by the tail messages. It's full of man and very drained of God. God actually affirms Moses in his question. In fact, we should see Moses' question, who am I, as a good sign of what's actually registering to Moses what's being asked of him. The insecurity is a good sign. The sense of inadequacy is a good sign. Who am I to do this? And God doesn't say, you're the man. He says, I know you're not the man. But I will be with you. But I will be with you. You see the enduring faithfulness of God here? The enduring faithfulness of God. Here is a God full of holiness and unapproachable light. Here's a God who's been pursuing his people in his love. But here's a God of enduring faithfulness. He wants you to know you're not enough. You see, that's those three questions, isn't it? Who am I? Am I enough? No, you're not enough. Is that okay? It is if you've got the Lord on your side. It is if you know the grace of God. 
It is because God comes through his spirit, his spirit in the gospel and he empowers us. Moses is going to do amazing things from here, isn't he? He's going to go to Egypt and through lots of fits and spurts and stumbles, he's ultimately going to lead the people of, of Israel out of Egypt. And he's going to humble the, the whole of the Egyptian army. And he's going to lead the people of Israel through the wilderness right up to the cusp of the, the, the promised land. It's an amazing story of the wonders that God does in and through Moses. But it's not Moses. It's God is with him each step of the way. You know, that's one of the, the beauties of the story of, of Exodus is that it teaches us so much about the redemption of our God as something that's in God's hands and not our own. That's in God's power and not our machinations. That the kingdom of God is not something we bring in or advance. It's something God brings in and advance. And he's occasionally going to use your efforts to do it. He actually chooses and loves to choose his people as a means by which to advance his kingdom, but not because they're smart enough or good enough or doggone it, people like them. He, he, actually, he actually uses them because he loves to show his strength and weakness. It's a beautiful thing to our God when he reveals his strength in our weakness and he chooses the likes of people like Moses. You know, one of the marvelous things about the story of the unfolding of the life of Moses is that he spends a lot of time on these mountains and ultimately we see not only does he, is he successful in the work that God calls him to, but simultaneously he's, well, he's a sinner all along the way and he fails all the time. Just because God is with you, even indwelling you by the power of the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean you're free from sin. We stumble forward, as we like to say here at Cornerstone. As we set our minds to the, to the commands of God, as we're, we have the wind of the grace of God at our back, we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, we have confidence and hope in growth, but not because our energy and strength, and not by perfection, but simply by the direction of the Holy Spirit leading us from one step to another. There is a dependence and a commitment that's side by side in the Christian life. A, a discipline that's also passively resting. A, a dependence that's also diligent. That's working hard at pursuing Christ and resting simultaneously in the work that only God can do. That's why the Apostle Paul in the labors in his own ministry says, I worked harder than any of them. We go, okay, Paul, my goodness. I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but Christ who works in me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, that's the dynamic at play here. Moses, I'm going to use you to lead my people out of Egypt. I can't do it. I know you can't do it. That's why I'm going to go with you. But I want you to see what he doesn't do. He doesn't leave him out there abandoned and he won't leave you abandoned in the midst of his call. He will equip you. He will prepare you. He will be with you. But notice he doesn't also let him off the hook. He doesn't say to him, you're right. I, if, if something's going to get done, I better just do it myself. I'll just leave you here keeping these sheep. Thanks, Moses. Glad we had this chat. That's not what he says either. He calls him into the work. 
He, in a sense, eviscerates him, gets everything out of his flesh there so he can fill him up and use him. If you sense that the Lord is actually breaking you down and weakening you and humbling you with every step of decision that you make in life, just know he probably is. That's his way. He was fashioning Moses all of those years, you see, even as he was keeping sheep on that hillside. Because he was going to turn Moses into a shepherd of God's people. You see, Moses is going to come back to this mountain. And when he comes back to this mountain, he's going to come back different, sort of. He's going to come back as a shepherd, just not a sheep. He's going to come back as a shepherd of God's people. And when he comes back, it's going to be different. It's not going to be just him and God. There's going to be probably a million and a half people at the base of the mountain. And they're going to make an idol. And they're going to grumble about food and water. And he's going to find that they're a lot like sheep. And God is going to provide. Every step of the way, God is going to provide. There's really something quite beautiful, isn't there, about verse 12, about the enduring faithfulness of the Lord? Because what we see there is he's going to give him a sign. Moses, here's your sign. When you do what it is that I've called you to do, you're going to get back to this point with all these people and you're going to say, by golly, God did what he said he was going to do. And that's going to be a sign to you. Notice his sign is not, let me confirm this to you to encourage you to go. He says, I'm going to call you in faith to go. And later, you're going to see as you end up back where it is that I called you, that I've been faithful. And it will be a sign to you. How many times have you looked back on your life at difficult moments where you thought everything was going to be undone and you get five and six, seven, ten years removed and you look back on that moment and you say, God has been so faithful. Here I am, quote unquote, at the same place, but I'm a different person. And maybe he's even given me more responsibility. Maybe there's even more of a yoke on my shoulders. But interestingly, it's becoming light, almost like the light and easy yoke of Christ. I'm learning that all the things that he's called me to do are things that I actually can't do. And that's been the point. That he wants me close to him, dependent on him, saying yes to his commands, and being surprised by his provision every step of the way. That's the life and the beauty and the adventure of the Christian life, you see. It's living by the call of God. And listen, that's true for you and me, you know. You know what God has said to you? He said, go into all nations, baptizing and teaching them all that I have commanded. There's your charge. Go evangelize your neighbors. Go go care in, in mercy for your community. Go show forth the love of God in verbal and tangible ways. Go advance the kingdom of God in the world that the fame of Jesus Christ's name may increase over all of the world. You guys are called to that. And I too. Let's go do it. Who am I? Who am I to do something like that? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Oh, you mean he's going to do it? Yeah. And he's going to use you. He's not letting you off the hook. But he's also not saying he's just going to go do it himself. Because he knows it's good for you. And he loves you. And he wants to use you. And he wants to display his strength in your weakness. That's what he wants to do. And that's exactly what he did in the cross, wasn't it? 
In fact, this passage in many ways is shaped directly by the cross, isn't it? I mean, here it is that he's called out of holiness, pursuing us with his love, revealing his enduring faithfulness. He's bringing us out of a slavery of sin, out of a captivity into a into the lush, broad land of the gospel, leading us ultimately into the new heavens and the new earth in Jesus Christ's return, which he will come down ultimately, or every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is indeed Lord. Isn't the ark and the the imitation and model of the gospel right here at play? And as he calls you in the gospel in your generation to go forth, it's not the brightest of you, it's not the most eloquent of you, it's not the richest of you, the most resourced of you. It actually accomplished the purposes as often the ones who are weakest, the ones most needy, who look a little bit like tax collectors and carpenters. Francis Schaeffer was asked years ago, who's the greatest Christian of our generation? And when Schaeffer was being asked that in the 60s and 70s, he says, oh, you probably don't know them. It's some no-name woman in India praying right now. And the Lord, by his grace, answering her prayers. You see, greatness in the kingdom of God is not like greatness in the world. People like Moses, who don't even know where they are and who they're from, are the people in whom the Lord is actually using to redeem his people. That means that you and I have a shot to be used by God. What an awesome thing. What a sober responsibility. How will you use the gift and the time and the energy that he's given you for eternal purposes even today and this week? How will you use them? Oh, I know, we want to go out and change the world. Well, it might be just changing diapers, I don't know. But it might be the ordinary faithfulness of keeping sheep on the side of the mountain that turns in how the world will actually turn toward Christ in and through the means of his church even today. Might it be you opening your Bible for the first time in a long time and beginning to pray, sparking up a new relationship with that coworker, taking a casserole to someone in need, The ordinary faithfulness of the Christian life, dependent upon the God who empowers our smallest of deeds, is the means by which the Lord saves the world. If he's going to save the world by a dead Hebrew hanging on the cross, of which the world will despise, he might just use the feebling efforts of you and me as we stumble forward in the Christian life. This holy God, pursuing us in his love, revealing his faithfulness, is a model for the way in which we can have hope in a world that needs the good news. Father in heaven, would you share this good news in and through us even this week as we recognize that the call of Moses' unique and redemptive history is also shared universally as it is bound up in the great commission of which we are all a part As there are still people all around us enslaved to sin and know not of the good news of the rescue and redemption of Jesus Christ. And as long as there is life, there is hope. And you've given us addresses and locations and relationships. You've given us people in whom we can care for and love. Would you, Lord, now teach us as to how to put that on display in the ordinary faithfulness of life. And in your own way and in your own time. Whether we see it or not, would you advance your kingdom until your kingdom is all over the world, even as the waters cover the sea. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.